and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Matt Solomon, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Eric Cressy. So Eric is the president of Cressy Sport Performance and director of player health and performance at the New York Yankees. Today, Eric will be discussing his work at the New York Yankees, how he attacks shoulder injuries, and what it's like to be a business owner in comparison to working as a director of an organization. This podcast is brought to you by Hawking Dynamics, the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking Dynamics takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customizable cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. The technology is constantly evolving, much like an app update for your iPhone. They communicate with users on a daily basis to make their system better. In addition to all of that, they also offer some of the most competitive prices for bilateral force plates on the market, and they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system. So, if you want to find out more, check out their easy intro to force plate section at www.hawkingdynamics.com forward slash blog. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Eric onto the show. So Eric Cressy, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure. Um, you mentioned quickly that you were you were at the New York Yankees. Can you take us through what a day looks like for you there? What what does that what does that look yeah. like in your in your day to day? Yeah, I, I would tell you it's 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 different every day um, because you know my position as, as as a director is a lot of it is systems behind the scenes, um, and then there are periods where I'm with the team as well. I'm in the trenches, whether that's evaluating, programming, coaching. Um, all those different things, meeting with a lot of our support staff, both on the sports medicine, baseball operations side, um, you know, everything from behind the scenes working on a computer to actually being front and center with the athletes. So um, I don't know that there actually is a, a, a typical day. Um, one of the things I will tell you is that a lot of it is, to be honest, nowadays distance-based um, because we're trying to work so hard to create the systems that aren't just going to make us, you know, better in 2020, but also make it scalable and, um, you know, have a lasting effect down the road. So um, a lot of it is, a, you know, educational outreach to our minor league staff and um, some of that as well. So it, 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 there's no such thing as a typical day, but it's it's never dull. I'll say that. Oh, fantastic. I think that keeps it interesting as well, right? So I yeah. mean, uh, you've, you've been there, seen it and done it. If you can yeah. have an, an interesting role, that makes a big difference to you, right? Yeah. And, you know, and the other thing is the way the role was structured, it was, you know, we were very transparent about, you know, talking with the organization about, you know, we still have our facilities in the private sector. So I still have responsibilities there. And, and that's why a big part of my, my early responsibilities were, were hiring the right people um, to be on the ground every day in, with the Yankees organization. So we've, we've brought on some really good people. We've, you know, we've retained a lot of great people as well. And we're just trying to put everybody in the same room and have productive discussions to, to take this thing to higher ground. Fantastic. It sounds, uh, sounds like a super interesting role. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm jealous and not jealous at the same time, right? Like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of jealous because it sounds ridiculously cool, but I wouldn't be yeah. jealous of uh, organizing all those people and making sure performance uh, is uh, optimum all the time. Yeah, well, no, my, my Twitter feed is a lot more interesting nowadays with, uh, with fans who have intriguing perspectives on how we should manage things from a sports medicine standpoint. So uh, try, try to have a good sense of humor and, not, and have thick skin about it, too. I can imagine uh, some people who don't necessarily understand what goes on, that can be a little tricky sometimes. No, there's always what you see publicly and then what actually goes on behind the scenes. So uh, usually those things are not one and the same. Understandable, understandable. But in terms of um, in terms of like the the nitty gritty stuff, right? So you're you're quite well known for your shoulder um, knowledge, injury rehab, um, performance side of things. So can you take us through specific to baseball? 
um, what that means for you. So what, what, what kind of shoulder injuries do you see? How do you go about uh, looking at that? Yeah, so the first thing that you need to, to know when dealing with, with baseball shoulders, um, and really this could honestly be extended to just about any overhead athlete. So obviously, you know, you're in Europe, so whether it's speaking with respect to handball, you know, in certain areas of the world, cricket, um, you know, we'll see it to some degree in tennis, swimming. Um, you know, really, when you look at baseball shoulders, there's no such thing as normal. Um, every one of them has pretty substantial structural deviations from normalcy that you'll see undersurface cuff tears you'll see you know slap tears so superior labrum anterior posterior injuries um, where you may be fraying it may be a full avulsion of the biceps tendon um, we'll see things like bennett's lesions we'll see everything imaginable um, so when you look at a, a throwing shoulder um, you have to assume that it's broken um, and when you only know that medical diagnoses or when you know that medical diagnoses are, are you know significantly abnormal you have to always come back to movement um, because you'll see a lot of ugly shoulder MRIs and then you'll realize that one of them's got a $200 million contract and has never had shoulder pain. Um, so you have to come back. What, what does a normal shoulder move like um, and how is this different from that? Um, so we always talk about a movement diagnosis and a medical diagnosis and they, they, they are not one and the same and you need to have both in your toolbox. Um, you know, there was one study that came out several years ago that, that talked about how 57% of pitchers have some form of shoulder injuries every year. So if we're talking about 57% of just a shoulder, you lump in some elbows, you throw in some necks, maybe some forearms, you know, wrist, hand, you know, toss in some blisters or, you know, a nail problem, something like that. And all of a sudden you realize that everybody else is, is, is dealing with something. So the more you can appreciate that this is a population that, you know, is effectively, you know, for lack of a better term, glorified rehab, um, I think you can be a little bit more cognizant of what you need to do to serve that population really well. So, um, you know, for us, you know, I, I very rarely fall back on just what the MRI says unless it's something that's really substantial. But I always want to be able to have a discussion with an athlete of, hey, here's how you move. Here's how it's different than what we want to. And here's how we're going to work together to get you, you know, rolling the right direction. So um, what does uh, that glorified rehab look like for you? How do you, how do you go yeah. about attacking that? Yeah, I think the first thing is that there's a principle of proximal to distal, right? So before we start giving you a, a grandiose rotator cuff program, we want to look at, you know, how is your core positioning? Where does your rib cage sit? What does your thoracic spine do? Um, how does your scapula posteriorly tilt, upwardly rotated, all of those things? Um, so we always start from the inside and work our way out because you'd be surprised at how often, you know, correcting some of the core control components can have a pronounced impact on what happens further down the chain. You know, we've got research that shows that if you, you mobilize the thoracic spine, shoulder internal rotation may improve. Um, so, you know, you can do manual therapy on a neck and all of a sudden people's, you know, ulnar neuritis, their symptoms at their elbow may resolve, you know, because it was actually referred pain. Um, so we always start in the middle and we work our way out. And, um, when you're when you're going to put that into practice, you you sit there, you work with the, the physiotherapist, for example, yeah. or um, athletic therapist, whatever whatever they're, yeah. they're called in America at the moment. Um, together with physio, you sit down. Um, you've got a diagnosis. How are you going to work from there to get that? So you're going to go um, you're going to go from the inside out. That's cool. Um, what does yeah. that then lead to in terms of the steps of your working? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly you have your medical diagnosis, whatever that radiology report says. Um, and we may have that on, you know, you know, certainly, you know, in the Yankees organization, we can get their full medical history and all that stuff. It's not always that neat and pretty working in the private sector because a lot of guys may have never had symptoms. So you don't just magically know what the inside of their, their shoulder works like. So you kind of have to assume they're, you know, maybe a little bit dinged up, but you know, you come back to movement. So for us, we always start with an assessment. Um, you know, that assessment is both general and specific. 
Um, and there's a there's a, both an objective and a subjective component to it. So subjectively, we're going to sit down, we're going to have a conversation about you know their training background, their injury background. You know, hey, where do you get sore after you pitch? Um, you know, what are the things that you feel like you struggle with? What's worked for you? What hasn't? So we get that more subjectively. And then we're actually going to go through like a, a full-on movement screen, you know, where there's objective components, right? Your hip internal rotation is 41 degrees in this position, right? Um, and then there will also be things that are a little bit more subjective, right? You know, like a single leg balance test, you know, you can score it as pass-fail. You know, some people might be a little bit more generous with their scoring than others. So there's always going to be, you know, a little bit of open interpretation that takes place. Um, you know, for us, if you look at our our assessment of how our athletes move, um, you know, typically we start in the office, um, we'll do a shirtless screen just for posture and we get a feel for, you know, front side and back. Um, and then from there we'll, we'll start doing some of our scapular screens. So we'll look at shoulder flexion, we'll look at shoulder abduction. We'll look at external rotation of the humerus with the elbows at the side. Um, we'll do a toe touch. Um, we'll look at a, a fiber up pushup. Um, we'll do single leg balance test. Um, we'll also do the, the selective functional movement assessments for cervical screens for rotation right, left, flexion, and extension. Um, so we'll see all those. And then um, basically uh, once we've done all those, we're going to head out on the floor and you know get them moving around a little bit on the table. So we'll look at you know a bunch of traditional orthopedic tests, hip internal and external rotation, Thomas test. Uh, Craig's test, you know, prone knee flexion, hip uh, abduction range of motion. We'll do an active and passive straight leg raise. Um, we'll, while they're in the, on their back position, we'll look at ER and IR of the shoulder. Um, we'll look at shoulder flexion um, in the supine position as well. Um, we'll flip them over. We'll look at thoracic rotation with a lumbar locked rotation screen. We'll also do that actively and passively. Um, we'll do manual muscle tests for the rotator cuff just to see how they present in that regard. And then we'll stand them up. We'll look at like an overhead lunge walk, overhead squat, um, you know, some of those more general screens. You, you have both specific and general. You have subjective and objective. And over the course of time, what you're doing in your head is you're, you're really just trying to pull together the information that you need in order to write a good program. And I think that's a really important um, takeaway, whether people realize that I just implied it or not. An assessment is not intended to be predictive. It's intended to be descriptive, right? I don't look at an overhead lunge walk, you know, where someone has poor frontal plane stability and say, you know what, he's more likely to roll his ankles. I look at it and I say, here's how this person moves. This is a competency I think he should have. We're going to address it with our programming. We're going to do more single leg work. Maybe we're going to coach him a little bit differently. We're going to has a higher priority on this because this is something he struggles in, whereas his overhead squat is perfect. Um, but, but I think we, as an industry, have gone too far down the rabbit hole trying to predict. Um, instead, I, I do believe that if you, 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 know, you create you know, gross movement quality and you know, specific movement quality that's better, you, know, you do substantially reduce the likelihood of something coming to that, that symptomatic threshold. And, so, and there's some good research from you know, Stu McGill had a great study that, that talked about that. They looked at firefighters with a, a training intervention and showed that you know, basically exercises that weren't included in the training intervention after, you know, 12 weeks, the, the joint loads were distributed better. Um, so, you know, I think the coaching that we do, the programming that we apply, it, it definitely does matter long term. Fantastic. I think it's really nice that you took us through from uh, the assessment way through to actually changing things as well. So that's uh, that's a big one for me that the practitioners sometimes miss is they, they've got this fantastic testing battery, but all of a sudden mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, what are we doing with all the data? Um, yep. Then for for me personally, at least I'm like just just save your time. Um, yeah. Go, go and have a chat with the athlete. Go and have a coffee and uh, and uh, get to know him a bit better and save your time with all the data. 
but uh, it's good to see that you're you're using that in a in a useful way as well. That's, uh, that's yeah. a really great message. And I, I don't fault folks. I don't fault folks that are going down the data. I hesitate to even turn the, use the term rabbit hole because that implies that in some way it's a you know it's a derogatory term. I do think there's an important you know scenario for you know for data collection. I think it's important for us to be progressive in that regard. And certainly, I do think we need to document. That's that's very important. We need to know where we've been. You know, to appreciate how far we've come. Um, but at the end of the day, I always want to know that if I'm collecting information, that in some way it should directly drive the training process. I don't think I should just be collecting data to keep up with the, the guy down the street who's collecting data. So um, because if that's the case, it's a, it's opening a really, you know, kind of big can of worms that, you know, you're it, it, you're, you're you're often, you know, kind of barking up the wrong tree, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I completely understand one, uh, and I agree with that. It's really uh, a really nice point to make. This podcast is also brought to you by Gymwear. Gymwear have Flex. Flex is the latest product to enter the world of velocity-based training, and it's developed by the team at Gymwear. Flex is the only laser-based system available, and it's this unique technology that makes Flex the most accurate and reliable barbell tracking product in a sub-500 US dollar category. It's wireless, portable, and specifically designed for individual use with its own social platform and automatic training lock. Flex captures all the critical performance and technique metrics that people demand from a velocity-based training device. Velocity, power, bar path, range of motion, and even bar position. Live feedback is delivered through the Flex app on every lift, and the data is automatically stored for review. Find out why VBT is such a powerful training method and what separates Flex from the competition at flexstronger.com forward slash VBT future. Before we, uh, before we run out of time, I want to quickly touch on uh, the key differences that you've noticed being a, a business owner, but mm-hmm. also working in, uh, with the Yankees so that you've got, you've got this kind of like you own your, your professional gyms, you're, you're working with baseball players, you're managing a ton of people, and then you go into a, a professional organization, which is, hey, uh, I've now got to be uh, directly responsible to my boss and say we're improving performance. What, what are the key differences for you? I, well, I think the, the first thing is just the there's a little bit of a velvet rope in the private facility, right? Like all the athletes that come to us in the private sector, they're paying their way, right? So what that means is they're coming to you for your expertise, and in the process, you know, they're, they're going to do what you ask them to do, you know, otherwise it's a waste of money. Um, so the, the buy-in, you know, we can, there's what you know and what you can implement. That's an old Mike Boyle quote. And, you know, we can implement the overwhelming majority of what we know in the private sector because they're, they're seeking us out because they've recognized that they don't have all the answers, right? I think in a team environment, it's a little bit different, right? You, you get a collection of players, many of whom you've never met before. So we had 62 players in our, our major league spring training. And prior to the start of the spring, I had worked with, I think, six of them in some capacity. So one-tenth of them were guys that had experienced our systems, bought into our systems, all that. And the other you know, 90% were ones that we need to meet where they were at and learn about what's worked for them and you know, help to, to do that because it's, it's, it's technically collectively bargained um, that those players have the right to do whatever they want during the offseason. So they're under no um, mandate to follow what we tell them. You know, certainly in season, we have a lot more control over it. But you know, the last thing you want to do is take a major league baseball player, which by definition is in the top point oh 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 one percent of players to ever play this game, you know, and, and tell him that, you know, he has to change everything he's done to get to that level. So um, I think the difference is we, we, we spent a lot more time, you know, getting to know players, um, learning, you know, where they're at, what's worked for them, what hasn't. 
that we can we can work to support them you know whether that's carrying out what they're already doing and maybe making like just some fine tuning some adjustments or we're you know we ask the right questions of players and they realize that we have a lot of things that we can offer to them um you know that's that's kind of the difference is is that you know there's the the buy-in takes a little bit longer on the the pro side and that's why you know i think what we do is we we work really hard to establish systems um not just at the major league level but at the minor league level when your athletes are much more impressionable so that you know longer term when they become major leaguers you know that they're in a situation where they're you know accustomed to what our norms are and all those and i think you know i i, I can't overstate this enough in both environments what's common between the two of them is athletes just want to be heard they want you to listen they want you to ask good questions they want you to show a vested interest in, in what they, they think works for them and to, to listen to the, you know, the, the, I don't want to say the cries for help, but the appeals for help, um, that they have for where they haven't been able to figure out the solutions on their own. And, um, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I think has worked or served us well in the private sector. And, and thus far, you know, a couple months in, it's, I think it served us very well in our work in, in Major League Baseball as well. Fantastic. And you, you touched very briefly on, um, for example, a lot of athletes will, uh, will be almost a master of their own programs, right? So they've already done a lot of stuff. You don't necessarily need to change much. Um, mm-hmm. Does that mean that everyone with you will have their, their own program, which either they have previously had or designed themselves, and you come yeah. in and edit parts of that? Or do you give them an individual program and then they add in bits and pieces to your program? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, the goal is certainly a, you know, 100% individualization. Um, and, and we've done that. You know, I think there are scenarios where it's been 100%, you know, athletes buying in saying, Hey, just tell me what to do. I'm going to follow it to a T. Um, you know, we have athletes making over $20 million a year who have literally completely bought into what we're doing. Uh, and then at the end of the spectrum, you athletes have a very refined routine where, you know, maybe you just make a couple quick suggestions. You give them the resources they need. That may even be like bringing in the, the equipment that they need you know, some of those things. So there's a, there's a huge continuum, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sure that's something that will evolve over the course of time as the relationships get stronger and, you know, the buy-in changes depending on things, you know, I, I think we, we can both agree. We've had athletes who had all the answers at age 25 and then at age 35, they realize that they, you know, that whether it's an injury or it's a drop in performance or something like that, they're seeking some kind of, um, you know, a new way to, you know, restore former performance or something like that. And, you know, we've seen that across the board, right? LeBron James has been very outspoken about what he's done with his training, his nutrition, his sleep. Um, and you can find, you know, whether it's Tom Brady or, you know, any sport there is, people who, who have had to find continuous ways to get better as their career progressed. So I think, you know, a lot of times these, these athletes who, you know, who seem to have all the answers now, once the relationship's stronger and they've had to struggle a little bit more, then we become, you know, even better resources to them. I think that's a really nice place to, to leave it. Can you give us a quick 30 second summary of, uh, of what we discussed? Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, public and private sectors, or I should say professional and private sectors are markedly different. Um, you know, there's, there's certainly what you know and what you can implement and you have to meet athletes where they're at and, and ask a lot of questions. We also spoke to some of the norms with respect to shoulder evaluation and treatment. Always start proximal to distal, uh, spend time at the, the core, the spine, the neck, um, and then work your way out before you, you know, start honing in just on the rotator cuff. Um, and I think, you know, the, the other thing that we, we kind of initially got going with a little bit is assume that everybody is broken, right? You have both a medical and a movement diagnosis. Both of them have important place in your um, your overall approach to dealing with athletes but at the end of the day the movement diagnosis is the one that's
that's probably more significant for for our peers and and the one that's going to allow you to to have the most impact on athletes without a surgical intervention fantastic well that's it well thank you very much for for your time today i really appreciate it and i'm sure everyone who's listening uh, does too so uh, Cressy, thank you very much thanks man i appreciate you having me absolute pleasure and that's it once again a massive thanks to eric for all of his hard work on today's podcast i really appreciate it and i'm sure you do at home too so having discussed shoulder injuries with eric today i want to put you in the direction of our five must read research reviews on injury prevention and rehab the link for that one will be in the show notes so be sure to check that one out in just a few seconds time so that's it. Once again, a massive thanks for me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science and Sport, and I'll speak to you next time.